Welcome to Future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, and together we'll explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Future of XYZ is presented in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. It is a very special episode because it's coming on the second to last day of Women's History Month. Um, and with us to talk about something very important and material to the history and the future of women is the author um, of uh, the new playbook. And I'm going to let Randy talk about the the book itself, but it's called Something Major, which is also the name of her company. But Randy Braun, thanks for joining us to talk about the future of women at work. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. And, and it's really interesting. I mean, you're an executive coach. You're the CEO of your own company, um, which really focuses on helping uh, empower women uh, in in their bold career moves. Um, You know, I know that you're based in D.C. and you started your career actually in development um, um, and and then obviously went into ad sales at Politico, among other places. But you have um, a pretty broad experience base to pull on to talk about women at work. Um, and I want to give you a chance to talk about the book, which just was released and is already a Wall Street Journal bestseller. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Such exciting news. <laughs> it is really exciting news. And it's really important because it suggests that a lot of people are paying attention to a very important topic. So I want to just kick us off with, you know, kind of the starter topic, which is this is the kind of second to last day of Women's History Month. We know and we'll get into some of the trends of women at work. Things are changing, but maybe not changing quickly enough. But like, what is the current, do you think, state of women at work today? So while I'm always bullish on the future, I think that we're in a very precarious moment where we have an opportunity to either double down on the gains and the momentum that have happened over time or we are at risk to experience even more backsliding than we did during the COVID-19 pandemic. We talked so much, Lisa, about the future of work. We're living the future of work. And this is truly a make or break moment for our organizations to put their money where their mouth is, right? I don't want to see your press release. I don't want to see your shiny graphic or your fancy LinkedIn post. What I want to see is pay equity. I want to see how you're hiring. I want to see how you're promoting, how you're handling performance reviews. This is the moment for companies to quote unquote live their values as they love to say that they do all the time. Um, thank you for that quick summary. And I want to I double click on a number of those issues, starting with the one that is most material, I think, to all women everywhere in the world, which is, of course, pay equity. Um, I think the statistic, if I, you know, if I if I've done my research correctly, you know, the Pew Research Center came out with basically a median against full time and part time hourly and wage workers. And they said that basically 80 percent is what pay equity is. It's got up to 82. That was our highest. So women get paid 82 cents on the dollar for men. But in fact, we were getting paid 80 cents on the dollar 20 years ago. So relatively, this is unchanged and maybe even a little bit of a slide backwards. Um, What do we do to address this incredibly entrenched and systemic problem? So it's it's a tremendous slide backwards, and I want to put a fine point on some of the data that you just put out there. Uh, number one, it's so important when we talk about whether it's 80 or 82 cents, and again, I've seen the data both ways, that this is a range that we need to be mindful is even broader 
for the 42 plus million women of color that the um that institute for women's policy research suggests that's how many women of working age women of color um the institute for women's policy research suggests are in the current workforce and that delta expands so drastically for that so it's a misleading number yeah is number one. You have to be mindful of the backslide that we've had on closing that gap. So staying stagnant is bad. What the World Economic Forum suggests, which was that pre-COVID, they estimated at current course and speed, it would take 99 years to close the gender pay gap. Within the last three years, they have extended that forecast the length of an entire generation to 135.6 years. That's the most recent figure that I've seen for that. And what concerns me is, you know, it's, I think about my own experience in the workplace. I'm the mother to a first grade daughter. Um, I want to be thoughtful about the world that we're building because also Lisa, that 135.6, that's a blended average too. And so we know that when we look at women of color in the workplace, um, that, that that forecast is even more extended for them. And it's patently unacceptable. And I'm really hopeful that this is going to be the era in work where we are able to make meaningful, meaningful moves to close that gap. Well, and these are statistics that are largely in the U.S., although the 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 issue of women and, and people of color, but obviously greater impact on women across the board when we're already at a, at, a, at disparity, I think is interesting because if I look at OECD countries, you know, so, you know, top 33 economies in the world, you know, South Korea in 2021 was at 31%. So women got paid basically 70 cents on the dollar. That's the worst within. So you actually think about America, it's like pretty freaking terrible in the grand scheme. And the best is Belgium, which has like a 1.15, you know, differential. So they're almost a parody, but there is nowhere in the world right now in the developed highest economy in the globe that is even close to 100%. And that is obviously quite crazy. And you you mentioned about the extension to uh, 135 years to, to fill this gap. What's crazy to me is, you know, we all know these expressions that exist all over the world. Like, we you know, I have to do this much to get this much recognition. But I actually think that the original statement came from a novelist in the late 1800s. So about 135 years ago, um, named Fanny Hurst. And she used to say, if I get it correct, a woman must be twice as good as a man to get half as far. I, I don't feel like that's changed an enormous amount. What are some of the systemic issues that are helping kind of keep that in play besides just I don't want to just say misogyny and, and the patriarchy those are obvious things but what are some of the other things you know that are leading to the highest rates of burnout dropout etc from the workforce that we've been seeing over the last number of years yeah, absolutely. So um, there's two pieces of research that I would direct our conversation towards. And I want to be really thoughtful about sharing the first one, which is about the research we know about the the maternity or what we call the motherhood penalty. Because I worry, Lisa, you know, I am a mother, but one of the things that really bugs me as someone who does this work full time around women's leadership is I think that heteronormative families talking about mothers and caregiving sometimes hijack the women's leadership conversation. And so I want to make sure that we're being thoughtful about making sure that doesn't happen today. But it is a systemic issue that is worth noting, which is that all the social science we've seen out there, it shows us that 
women are likely to see their earnings plateau or even decrease during their childbearing years. I can tell you my experience. I had my two kids in two years and six days. I actually doubled my compensation. Um, but I think what is so remarkable to people when I tell that story is it feels so unique to them. It feels so unicorn status. And that's a problem. Uh, because we know that there is implicit and explicit discrimination against women in their childbearing years and for caregivers. And I would say that this also really extends to people who are caregiving for elderly folks um, in their family as well. That's why. Because no, of course, I just want to interject really quickly because obviously we 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 met through Chief and, and Molly Day is at Chief and she's been on the program before talking about paid leave. And the American yeah. is like, again, the only country in the entire world that has no paid leave, no medical paid leave, no maternity, no paternity no wellness, no family emergency leave, nothing. And so that's obviously one of the things that plays in when women obviously have an outside burden, not only on motherhood, you know, but on caregiving writ large. Absolutely. And so that's exactly what's happening. You're seeing women go out. They're under-supported. They're under-resourced. They would turn probably before they're ready to, which makes their feelings, it just feels more precarious. And I've actually seen some research as well that Women who return to the workplace after those leaves, they're actually not the most likely to leave within the first six months that they're back. It's actually a year to three years later, right? When it's like that just grind catches up with them because they never had a second to catch their breath or because perhaps, statistically speaking, they're having more children. Um, and Molly's amazing. Uh, her episode was fantastic. The other thing that I would say as well um, is that we know that research also shows that women can be penalized when we speak up. Um, and so what happens is I find it's this all the time that women have great ideas, but we've been taught to self-censor and to edit because editing feels safe. And so we start to move through our work worlds, number one, um, hedging ourselves, right? So we say things like just or actually or sorry when what we really meant was thank you. Um, or we're very delicate in the way that we share ideas and often give people the opportunity to claim credit ideas. Um, or we're not good at taking credit for what we did. Um, and so I think that there really are some systemic pressures. I would want to be conscientious of the fact that we're two white women having this conversation. Um, and I think it's really important to talk about how this impacts women of color in particular. Um, the same research I cited also shows that women of color are much more likely to be penalized when they share, you know, a conflicting opinion. They're much more likely to be cast as abrasive. And so, of course, of course, women are sometimes apprehensive to own their message or to turn up the volume on their voice at work, and it catches us in this bind. Um, and so those are two really important pieces of research between the motherhood penalty and all the research we know about the systemic issues we face about self-censoring and, and owning our message, I think are so important. And that's where Lisa, I don't mean to jump ahead, but that's where um, allyship comes into play. Um, we need to make sure that we have allies and decision makers who are being thoughtful about compensation, who are designing equitable leave structures, who are able to call out bad behavior, who are able to receive feedback on bad behavior. And we need more women and more women of color. And I would also say people of color um, at the tables so that we don't end up with these kinds of, you know, just blind spots in our organization. Well, I love I love everything that you've just said. And one of the things I think I, I think hammering home the point about women of color being even more judged is is so important because the headwinds are so much and the hurdles for so many systemic reasons, especially in this country, but frankly, not exclusively. 
Um, one of the things in your book, and I, I really love this uh, antidote because I, it's one of my favorites and I talk about it a lot. You know, um, one of my favorite quotes is Madeleine Albright when she says, you know, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. And I think during the Obama administration, you know, Michelle Obama, who I just adore, of course, um, and is brilliant, really set out a structure. And, and, and you can tell the story because I think you wrote about it in your book. But it's an amplification of each other and making sure, therefore, exactly what you said, there is there is um, a structure in place to make sure that women's voices are not diminished. Can you talk about that just briefly as like a, a way of all of us thinking about women at work in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm going to get to that in a second, but something you said just also made me think about, you know, the Crown Act, which is this bill um, that we can't even get a bill through that helps protect women for wearing their hairstyle the way that they want, want to. And so, you know, we talk about the systemic racism that our colleagues face in the workplace, um, you know, just the ability to get on this Zoom, right, with the, your hair the way that you want it to. Um, it is the most basic right that I think is lacking for women um, and something that we need to be passionate um, and and forceful with with speaking up and speaking for, um, uh, you know, speaking for this this action that needs to happen and being allies. Um, to your point about the amplification, um, it actually came in the Obama administration. It was President Obama's senior staffer. So he had more women at the table than any president before him. But there was this chatter amongst the senior female staffers that even in the, at the seat in those seats of power, they were not getting up airtime in those meetings. And so what they did was they banded together, Lisa, and they created this strategy that they called amplification. And it works like this. Whenever one of them would raise a point, someone else at the table would amplify it. So I think it's done. Exactly. And not only would they second it, Lisa, they would use people's names. So they would say, Oh, you know what? I love the point that Lisa just made about X. And then someone else would chime in. I also love the point that Lisa's making. And Randy raises a great point about why it's going to be so impactful. And so I really am a believer in shine theory, which is this term coined by Anina Tussaud and Anne Friedman, the idea that women go farther when we collaborate and celebrate each other's success instead of competing. And when it, right? Um, and what we need to do is um, we need to think about how we come together and amplify each other's voices, though it's not a replacement. Like we can do all the amplification in the world that we want. And the truth is there is systemic inequities. We just talked a few minutes ago. There is systemic racism. Um, and that is going to help us cope while we make the systemic change that we need so that all women truly do have the opportunity to be successful and to thrive in place. Well, I think, you know, what's I mean, this is really as we think about the future of women at work, we've talked a lot about like what's going on right now. And I think the path forward of what needs to happen is very clear. And I and 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 yet we know that it not and we know that although there has been much change and one might argue progress, in fact, you know, it's certainly by most of our standards not moving nearly quickly enough. And of course, with you know, what we call the CSAS shit with 2 million women leaving the workforce during, you know, um, the pandemic and those jobs not really coming back in the same way uh, at the same salaries, et cetera. I mean, there are many, many kind of we talked about pay and leave already. Um, you talked a little bit about women like mo self-modulating our own voices. But we also have like a lot of other things that psychologically over time have been built up. You are a coach. I mean, you are a feature on Forbes, you know, coaching counsel. You, you, you have, you know, you speak about this at companies. 
we're talking DEI, which is both for diversity, equity, inclusion, for color, for gender, for sexuality, for religion. It, it really is actually encompassing. That is one of the things that needs to be addressed as we look forward. What are some of the tools that you recommend to clients individually as well as corporate clients, um, you know, that really can help, let's say, move the needle on, on, on moving towards a better future of women at work? Absolutely. And I'll just kind of rapid fire through a few of them. And I want to, again, just underscore, like these tools are not a replacement for the systemic change that we need to see, but they're things that I offer clients that I hope will empower them to thrive while progress is moving in a very glacial case. Uh, so, you know, I want us to one, rethink productivity. I find as high performing, successful women, we like, obsess over productivity. And it often, Lisa, is a place where I find high performing women actually procrastinate. We hide out inside productivity because it's easier to focus on getting through the innumerable tasks on our to-do list and the never-ending emails than it is to sometimes ask ourselves the tough questions of like, what's it going to take to set a boundary? What do I really want out of my work life right now? So that's rethinking productivity and thinking about where am I procrastinating? And Lisa, am I being productive or impactful? Because those are different things. That's number one. Uh, Number two is we need to get clear on feeling empowered to set boundaries. I think we constantly overestimate the impact of disappointing other people and chronically underestimate the impact of disappointing ourselves. So we got to one, rethink the cost calculus, two, remember no is a full sentence, and three, when no feels uncomfortable, Lisa, I love to use the goals and rule of improv, which is something I talk about in this book, yes and, to set a boundary, right? Yes, I would love to help you with that. And let's meet next week to talk about the Q4 priorities because what I'm realizing is that if we take this on, we're going to have to reshuffle team team objectives and and bandwidth. Or yes, I would love to help you know with preparing for Easter or Passover. Um, you know, we're recording this. Um, you know, as as um, Ramadan, Easter, and Passover are coming upon us. Like yes, I'd love to help with those holidays prep. And this is my availability to contribute to the family. You know, so using yes and is a tremendous way to set a boundary. So I have a few more tips, um, but I'll just pause there, Lisa, and see how those are landing with you so far. I think it's I think it's great, and I think what's so so interesting always about speaking with people who have both executive experience themselves and then are coaching others on on matters that matter so much because you do focus on women at work. That is the focus of something major. That is the focus of your work. Um, I, and 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 I want to give us a chance as we're thinking about like if we think specifically about organizations right? How do we help enable some of those things that you were just describing? Because those are individual behaviors that are super helpful. And I love one of my personal favorites, but I have to always remind myself, no is a full sentence, um, is is fantastic. Um, but what can organizations do? I mean, what are some of the things that as we look, you know, let's say five to 10 years in the future to really get things going better on, on the equity front, there's systemic policy and regulation. Absolutely. We may or may not ever get there, especially with where certain things are heading. However, hopefully we will. But what can organizations take on that they're not mandated to do, but they they need to? I'm so glad that you parsed that out because the tips that I just gave are about shifting the microculture in your mindset or in your team, right? But we do need to zoom out and talk about macroculture. And one of the things that I talk about this book is this idea that I call 
performative productivity culture. And Lisa, I describe performative productivity culture as a set of workplace habits and norms where we prioritize performing our commitment to that hustle culture over actually impacting work with meaningful. So again, that performative productivity culture, we are prioritizing the performance of work over the impact of our work. And so when we think about organizational norms that could be set, I just want to offer you a few. Uh, number one is we absolutely positively re need to rethink email culture. Um, there is research that shows that no matter how much, Lisa, you put in the, the email, oh, you don't have to look at this until tomorrow. Oh, don't get back to me until Monday. The senders of after hours emails consistently underestimate the impact it will have on receivers and receivers consistently overestimate the urgency um, or the points that they'll get if they send it back in a quick manner. And so I just want to remind all of our all of our listeners today, Lisa, if you can fire off the email while you're watching Netflix, if you can fire off the email while you're hitting the links on the golf course, and if you can fire off the email while you're doing carpool, it is not truly an urgent email. Use any of the delays and functionalities that happen that they're available to you or simply put in your draft. So that's one. Number two is we've got to run better meetings. Do not invite me to a meeting if you have not set an agenda, if you have not sent it in advance, if you have not outlined the objectives. We have got to quit this whole like meetings about meetings about meetings. And then Lisa, the, the final thing that I'll offer to you um, is we have got to rethink how we handle asynchronous working hours, right? Where we say, oh, you know what? Take the time you need to get a project done. That's great and love flexibility as a mom who came up professionally with two babies and young kids in the workplace. I wish some of the norms we have today would have been there. You know, when my first grader was a newborn because it took so much capital without them existing to make my work life happen. But what I'm saying, Lisa, is that there's research that suggests that um, those deep work blocks that we like to put on our calendars, they actually only work if they are observed as a team. So we need to have team no scheduling days, team working hours, not only where it restricts us, but where we're able to facilitate deep work instead of that constant just multitasking. So I'll pause there. Um, but this is something, if you can't tell Lisa, I'm very passionate. Uh, absolutely. Well, and, and for good reason, it's what it's what you do and you, what you've experienced. I, and I think one of the things I want to just as we as we think about wrapping up here, I always have my 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 famous last question. But what I what I want to ask you, Randy, as a coach, as a CEO, as now author of this, you know, uh, Washington, you know, wa uh, Wall Street Journal bestselling book, you know, is as as all of those productivity tools or boundary tools. You know, these are not just for women, you know, and, and I think women make up 50 percent of the world population, of course. And if we're thinking about how are we going to have continued, I hate to say it, but, you know, growth of GDP and, and efficiency and effectiveness and frankly, productivity in our global economy, if we are ruling out 50 percent of women or we are having, a, you know, a dropout rate and burnout rates among 50% of the population who are also providing caregiving at higher rates. I think one of the things that I'm really curious about is your perception as you look ahead, since we are the future of XYZ, of what is like the number one thing that needs to shift. Maybe we've already covered it. Maybe it's something else. And what is your greatest hope for 20 years from now in the year 2040 where are we with this conversation about women at work and at that time? 
Absolutely. And I think it's worth noting that there's new research that has just actually come out even since I took this book to publication at the um, the biggest wave we're seeing of women's attrition in the workplace, Lisa, is women at middle and senior leadership levels. And that scares me. Um, and so as we think about the future, we t- started our conversation with women how there are parts of it that feel precarious and we need to acknowledge that. So you said, you know, you said, I hate to, to say it, but we ought to talk about GDP. I want to scream it loud and proud because you've heard of people say, you know, women's rights are human rights. Uh, we need to remember that women's advancement is advancement of the global economy. Women's success is prosperity for our nations. And so when we think about living in a more equitable and more prosperous world, those things aren't aligned. I want to see every company that says they care. You know, don't show me your graphics, show me your compensation study and the action plan that you have over the next 12 months to meaningfully close those gaps. So I think, Lisa, it would be too Pollyannish to say that in the year 2040, I want to see the pay gap closed because I don't think that that's possible. But I think that we're at an incredible inflection point. You know, the Edelman Trust Barometer says that Americans put more trust in the institution of business than they do in government or the media or anything else. And so we need businesses to start really walking the walk. And I think if businesses put the resources into things like compensation studies, put the resources into things like looking at their hiring, their performance evaluation, even the qualifications that are required for a job, if they speak up about things like the Crown Act. Um, then we can be in a position where Lisa, you and I can jump back on this this podcast and we can do a look back and look at some of the stats that we looked at that 80 to 82 um, cents on the the dollar pay gap. The fact that the, the gap for women of color increases, I hope in 2040 we'll be able to say we made measurable, meaningful progress and that the trajectory is brighter tomorrow than it is today. So that's my greatest wish. Um, I think that's a wonderful wish. I, th- I I agree with it fully. It's a really also excellent place for us to stop uh, on this uh, 30th of March uh, at the very end of 2023's uh, Women's History Month. Randy Braun, uh, author of Something Major, the new playbook for women at work. Thank you for talking to us about the future of women at work. Um, It's been a pleasure. And for everyone listening, thank you for joining us. Um, Thank you. PBS, Rhode Island PBS, also for for presenting uh, this episode. Uh, I also want to make sure that everyone knows that if you're watching, um, you know, you can also listen anywhere you get your favorite podcast. If you're listening where you get your favorite podcast, you can also watch on YouTube. Visit uh, www.ripbs.org forward slash XYZ or visit us at future-of.xyz to get our Instagram handle, all back episodes, and everything else. Um, thank you again, Randy. Such an important topic. Uh, you know, the, the 25 minutes does not do us justice, but uh, you did a great job, and I appreciate it for all of us women at work. Thanks, Lisa.